0: Conference Championship weekend in the NFL is upon us. I'll break down the importance of both games for each team as we await to see who will punch their ticket to Super Bowl 58. Jim Harbaugh reintroduces himself on the pro level in LA and where's Bill Belichick's next stop? The Bucks have had an eventful week firing a new head coach 43 games into the season and now Doc Rivers is coming to save the day. Will the Edmonton Oilers ever lose in the NHL? The baseball writers announced the latest group of Hall of Famers inducted into Cooperstown. Two I agree with. One, eh, not so much. And the Australian Open, the final that we were hoping to get for, is thwarted down under. Back to provide some insight on everything that's happening in sports is yours truly. It's all coming up, but first, this message. J Reel's here to spend a brief moment and share a friendly reminder to please subscribe, rate, review the podcast on whichever platform you listen to on the regular. Just so we can increase the visibility of the J Reels podcast to those who aren't familiar with it. Leave plenty of stars, write a favorable review. It will go a long way for the curious listener looking to hop on board to get a dose of entertaining and passionate sports talk. For the visually inclined, please subscribe to my YouTube channel, at J Reels, as I post daily shorts and weekly vlogs, not only delving into the world of sports, but follow me on my journey to take the podcast and channel to new heights, as I provide an in-depth, behind-the-scenes look at what it takes for yours truly to produce Content on a day in, day out, week in, week out basis. It goes without saying how much I truly appreciate all of your support. And without further ado, the J Reels podcast begins in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Let's get this sports podcast party started, all right? The J Reels podcast. Why don't you wait until July 1st to make an announcement? What a disgrace. He can rack up all these numbers in October, November, and December, but what really counts is let me see this in January. The sports rebel without a pause, delivering fast-paced, jam-packed sports talk like no other. Listen, I gotta call it as I see it, he is not a good player. I'm sick and tired of having to deal with the disappointment of this franchise. When does it stop? And yes, another winter that I can sleep in peace. Coming correct, direct, and in full effect. Let's get it. This is the J-Worlds Podcast. Welcome aboard. What is happening, Michael people? Greetings! How are you? How's it going? How's everybody doing out there? What is the latest and greatest? Hope everybody's doing well, feeling fantastic in excellent spirits. Another episode of Rapid Fire Passionate Sports Talk awaits. Glad to have you pass by to listen to it all as this is the J Reels Podcast with your host J Reels. For my first timers, welcome aboard and for those who've been banging with me going back to the very beginning, somewhere in the middle or even... As early as this past Monday, I welcome you guys and gals back and we all anticipate Sunday three o'clock. I know for many people, especially the football fan, they are chomping at the bit to see how this is all going to unfold between the hours of 3 p.m. And I'll say roughly 10, so seven hours that we could finally get into both of these games. I'm sure you've heard it all up until this point and it's still a couple of days to go depending on when you're listening to this. But they are two very intriguing games, two very fascinating games. Sometimes I like to get into the teams from a standpoint of the importance of what it means for these franchises, and we understand Kansas City's been here a million times, six straight conference championships, and you would think for them that this is no big deal, no sweat, win or lose, it's not going to make or break the organization or franchise, And I'll unpack that a little bit from that standpoint, but to me, I look at the other three teams as the bigger story, and I'll start with the first game, I'll go with Baltimore for them in particular, and to me, it revolves around the quarterback. This is Lamar Jackson's time. We saw what he did in the second half against Houston, again, that's the JV, it's a team that we would say... Surprisingly, got to a postseason considering the collapse of the Jaguars, them winning that final game against Indianapolis in Indy, and winning a division before having to go into the postseason with the new head coach and the rookie quarterback, and beating the Browns the way they did, and going to Baltimore with a 10-10 halftime score, and thinking that maybe they could pull off an upset. That wasn't to be the case as we saw, and now they go off into the Offseason with a lot of promise, a lot of hope for their future. So, to put that aside, Baltimore, squarely on this game, this means everything. The Sun, Moon, Stars, Galaxy for number eight. And if he performs well and the Ravens lose, people may not live with it, especially in that region, but they're going to look at it from a standpoint of Lamar Jackson delivered. He at least... Kept his team in the game, maybe had a lead throughout, didn't make the costly turnover, didn't have a stretch where he looked like he was confused, or threw errant passes, or an untimely interception. If they lose a 35-31 game, you could live with it. But if anything short of that comes through, whether it's him not being able to Run the way he's accustomed to where the chiefs have snuffed out any opportunity for him to get in the open field. Obviously they'll want to try to keep him in the pocket as much as they possibly can. You would think that they're going to incorporate a spy with Steve Spagnolo and what he's been able to do throughout the course of his career dating back to his days as a New York giant defensive coordinator. But this is all squarely on him because it doesn't matter what that defense does. it's not as if they have, a guy like Ray Lewis or even Ed Reed, we understand that they are a very good defense. And that's led by Roquan Smith, their linebacker. And yes, we could throw in Justin Matabuke, and we can throw in even a veteran like Kyle Van Noy, who's made a key contribution to this defense, as well as the Kyle Hamiltons of the world. And we can go through the whole defense. But to me, this is all about Lamar Jackson. And part of it is the coach, but he won a Super Bowl, what was it, 11 years ago, But that's a long time between drinks. And I even think for Harbaugh, it would be important for him to get back there as being one of the top coaches in the sport. Do I think he's maybe a top five coach? It's borderline. But if he does happen to win this game on Sunday with the pressure and not only that, but also with the prominence of his quarterback, if he's able to deliver and go toe-to-toe with number 15 on the other side, they have as good as any of a shot to win this game get to a Super Bowl, and then we'll see who they face at that time. But how I look at Baltimore in this game, I've talked about how much they are a front-running team. They want to play from ahead. They don't want to play from behind, or even if the game is tight late. Look at how that first half unfolded against the Texans, to where they had a blunder there from the special teams, where they let a 67-yard punt return tie the game. The... Offense sputtered there where the offensive line sprung holes. And even though, give credit to the Texans and their defensive coordinator for pretty much attacking Lamar Jackson in the pocket, blitzing him, which they normally don't do, and making him ineffective in that first half before they made adjustments and were able to take off there in the second half. But to me, how I'm going to look at Baltimore And how they're going to be able to navigate this game. As we all know, they're going to have to play from in front. If this is going to be anything like we saw in Buffalo on Sunday. To where the Bills, for two and a half quarters, it looked like they had the game in control. And then all of a sudden, it went off the rails. And we saw the end result there. Walking out of Orchard Park with their heads hung low. And another offseason to answer a bunch of questions. Could that be the case here for the Ravens? I think it's going to be a shootout. Anything less, I'd be surprised. Could it be 20-17? to 17? I think it could be. But Kansas City's defense, although it's a good defense, not a great defense. And although they made timely stops last week against Buffalo, they're certainly going to need to do that here again this week. Especially with the dual threat of Jackson and the weapons that they have there on offense. Whether your name is Zay Flowers, Isaiah Likely, Odell Beckham Jr., chances are they may even get Mark Andrews back, which is Lamar Jackson's security blanket. But, how I look at it, I can see this being a game that the first to get to 28 is going to win this game. Now, I can see this being similar to Buffalo 27-24, whatever, but I think this is going to be a wide open game. I can see this being a heavyweight bout. And it could come down to who has the ball last. Which then now, translate to the other side with Kansas City. As odd as this is going to be to even think, let alone say, that the Kansas City Chiefs could be fast and loose. They have no pressure on them. And people could say, well, they're defending their title. If they go in there and stick up the place, it's going to look bad on Andy Reid. It's going to look bad on Patrick Mahomes. Well, when you look at this whole run by the coach and the quarterback, they've had one bad half that they could point to to say, yeah, that does not look good throughout the course of this run. And that's the second half of the championship game against the Bengals two years ago to where they jumped out to a big lead. Remember right before the half, instead of kicking a field goal, they tried to be cute with that screen pass to, I believe it was Tyreek Hill. And then what happened was is that they got the tackle there, Eli Apple, and then they weren't able to get any points out of that to where the Bengals then had a big second half. Mahomes was unable to get his usual self, whether it's him getting his attack through the air or even at times trying to escape and get first downs. And as you saw, he threw that interception in overtime when they had the ball and that led to the game-winning field goal by the Bengals in order for them to go on to a Super Bowl. So that is the only blemish that they've had here throughout the course of this six-year run. We would expect that the Chiefs are going to perform close to if not at the high level that they've been the standard here throughout the course of the last half decade plus and now you have a scenario where they're going into another building not as hostile as Buffalo I get it that the Raven fans are going to flock there they're going to come out but that's not a place where it's anything close to a big time whole field advantage it's not Buffalo it's not Pittsburgh, where it was back in the day. It's not one of those buildings that when you go in there, it's a house of horrors. Baltimore hasn't had an AFC Championship game in that building since they've constructed that building, what was it, almost 30 years ago. And I understand they're going to come out, they're going to represent, but to me, if I'm the Chiefs, I'm not going to look at that place like, oh, geez, I may have to watch my back here. It's not Philadelphia. And not that the link has that special feeling, but we know the fan base, how rabid they are. And how tough they're going to be on the opponents. So I know the Chiefs aren't going to be intimidated by that. But you know that they're going to, at least we would think, based on their recent performances, that they're going to come to play. And even if they're down, let's say 21-10, midway through the third quarter, nobody's going to think that they can't come back to either tie or even take the lead as the game gets deeper. So, anything less than that would be a shock. And I'm sure Patrick Mahomes is going to hear it again, just like he heard last week. Oh, his first playoff game on the road. It's going to be up in hostile territory in Buffalo. This is what the Bill fans wanted. This is what the Bills have been waiting for to host Kansas City in that building. And granted, it's a much lesser scale because it's not as if Baltimore and Kansas City have a rivalry, but they're going to look at this like, hey, it's business as usual, we're one step closer to getting to a Super Bowl where they pretty much counted this out two-thirds into the season with all of their offensive ineptitude, dropping passes left and right, Kadarius Tony with the offsides, all these different circumstances that if you're an NFL fan, you've seen and you thought, well, there's no way that they're going to get to a Super Bowl because they've been floundering, they've been flopping around, they haven't been as concise, they haven't been as crisp. And here they are. Back in another championship game. So to me, unless they completely fall flat on their face and lose 35 3, then we could say, ooh, that was a bad optic. And even if that's the case, you know what? They're allowed one. It wouldn't look good in defense of their title. And you would certainly think, like, what the hell happened to the Chiefs here? But guess what? All the great teams have these bad games. We could go down the list. The first one that comes to mind was when the Niners, back in 86, just a year removed from winning a Super Bowl, or two years because the Bears won in between, and we know the Niners and their run throughout the course of the 80s. They went to the Giants Stadium, and Jerry Rice on the first play of the game catches a slant, and it looks like he's going to go to the house. He fumbles the ball, Giants recover, and that was pretty much the game from the very first play as the Giants went on to rout the Niners, 49-3. So every dog has its day to where things don't click, things aren't performing the way a team of that ilk, usually on any given Sunday, are going to be able to live up to what they are accustomed to, and then now, could this be it for them? Could this be the one moment where the Ravens, it's been their year, From the start, and the MVP that we would think is going to be Lamar Jackson is just going to steamroll this Chief team? I don't think so. And now for the game itself. I think the key here for the Ravens is that you have to not only step on their neck, but you're going to have to put the stake through the heart. They cannot let the Chiefs hang around. This is a game where if they're going to play from in front, if they go up 10-0, and let's say the... Chiefs 10-7, they score, they got to go up 17-7. They have to counter with every punch that the Chiefs are going to try to land throughout the course of this game. And they're going to have to play that way. They cannot look at this as a situation where even if they're up 24-10 and there's three minutes to go in the third quarter that they could rest or put up their feet to think that, oh, we're going to cruise the victory. Because the second they do that, and the Chiefs sniff blood, that's it. We could talk about how the Raven defense, how they're going to pressure this quarterback. You can't blitz him. You can't get after him. He's a guy that he plays tough. We understand he's not big like Josh Allen. We understand that he's not a linebacker mentality type quarterback. But boy, does he have a linebacker's heart. And the Ravens, again... All it takes is for one play, one miscue. The Chiefs could overcome turnovers. Maybe not three or four, but if an early interception, or even a fumble for that matter, and maybe the Ravens get an opening, that right away we could think and look to say, "Uh uh-oh, maybe this is where the Ravens are going to pounce. And maybe they do at that point, but it doesn't necessarily mean that the Ravens are just going to take off and run away with the game. If it's the other way around, I could see that because of their championship medal because of their DNA and that they've been here before six times in fact where the Ravens this is uncharted territory for this group not for that coach but for the quarterback and for a majority of the team I think the Chiefs are going to prevail and I'm not saying that as an anti-Raven pick this is the deep end of the pool this is not the Houston Texans I would have given them a better shot against Buffalo to win this game. And it's not to say they can't win the game. Of course they can. But. I'm going to say Chiefs 31. Ravens 27. And in the second game. The Lions. What this game means for the organization. This is by far. Think about it. This is the biggest game. In franchise history. Now. I get it in the Super Bowl era because if you're going to go back to the 50s from when the last time they won an NFL championship in 1957, we could talk about that being the biggest game in the illustrious or maybe not so illustrious considering the Lions have been around since forever, but considering that this team hasn't had any success, a bunch of misfortune, we could go through the laundry list and yes, they've had so many great players over the years, maybe not a recent vintage other than Calvin Johnson. Barry Sanders, etc., but you'd have to go way back to even think about the last time that this team has won a championship of any sort, and you have to go, obviously, before the Super Bowl era, but right now, there isn't a fan in that region or an NFL fan in the country to know that this game is enormous. They have not been to this point since 1991 when they went to RFK Stadium and they lost to the Redskins. And now it's all right in front of them. For this head coach who was a former tight end, who is very emotional. You see it there, where whether it was on Hard Knocks a couple of years ago or just in the NFL films that you'll see with these highlights throughout the course of this postseason. The guy, everybody loves him. And how could you not love him? He's a guy you want to cheer for, a guy you want to root for. As he said in his opening press conference, I want these guys to go through a brick wall. For him. A quarterback that went to a Super Bowl with the LA Rams. And lost to the New England Patriots. Now one step away from getting back there. And an offensive line. Which is going to be the key to this game if you ask me. This offensive line. Led by Frank Ragnow. Panay Sewell. They're going to be the anchor to see whether or not. They're going to take this organization to heights that they've never seen. And... We could talk about their offensive weapons, which are plenty. Guys like Amon Ra St. Brown, who was an all-pro this year. The running back in Jameer Gibbs, who was electric, complemented by David Montgomery. We could look at their tight end, Sam Laporta, who's done big things this year. We could also look at the other guys on a lesser scale who have contributed. The Josh Reynolds of the world and the collective unit which may not overall be sexy, especially with the skill positions, but they've been able to do the job. And all that's left is 60 minutes to get to that Holy Grail, to get to Las Vegas to play in a Super Bowl. And then you have the Niners, who in recent vintage have either fallen short of getting to a Super Bowl or not winning a Super Bowl. This is their fourth Conference championship in five years. And they've fallen short. Two of those times. Whether it was in LA against the Rams. Obviously they made it to the Super Bowl. Where they lost in Miami to the Kansas City Chiefs. And then you had another time where they fell short. And were unable to get to the big dance. And it made you think that. With Kyle Shanahan. Who's had a lot of success in this league. Whether as an offensive coordinator, or even as a head coach, now is his time. He's got to get there. His team has been loaded all year. His team is arguably the best team in the sport. I get it. People in Baltimore are going to refute that. But I'm not going to say it's now or never, but you have to ask when. This is as good as an opportunity for them to get to a Super Bowl as they've had in the past. And as we know, they've gotten to a Super Bowl and fell short there, even with a 10 point lead against Patrick Mahomes. Sounds familiar? In a fourth quarter of a Super Bowl. Still came back and won. But now, let's see if they're able to beat a Lion team that may have Destiny in their corner. And they're going to do everything possible to smack Destiny down in order for them to win a conference, get to a Super Bowl, and win it. As for the game itself, to me, it's going to be in the trenches. How the line offensive line is going to stack against guys like Nick Bosa, Fred Warner. You know who the guys are. I don't have to tell you who the nine of defense, as stout as they are. Although they're secondary, to me, I think you could throw on them. I know they have good players there. They don't have great players. They do have great players in their front seven though. And how that offensive line is going to stack against that front. And then on the flip side of that is the defense for the Lions and a 1-8 in Hutchinson. How I'm sure he's going to be double teamed, but being that pass rushing force, that game wrecker, similar to what we've seen in the Niners over the years. But now it's all on Hutchinson. And the reason why I say that is because when you're a number two pick overall and you're from the state of Michigan, went to college there, and now, of course, as a pro, this is his time to show the world that everyone's going to watch, that he's going to be the next great up-and-coming player. And I don't want to put it all on him, but he's the anchor of that defense. And what is he going to do to slow down or even stop Brock Purdy? And I can't believe I'm saying it in that regard, but we all know. If Purdy's going to be in a rhythm, if Purdy is going to be pitching and catching all day, that's going to spell curtains for the Lions and their defense. And I understand Debo Samuel is 50-50 at this present moment with that shoulder injury. And when we look at the game against the Packers, granted with all the weapons that they have, you have to think that Debo Samuel is the quintessential piece to that puzzle because he's a Swiss Army knife. The guy can line up in the backfield, slot, or outside. And when your defensive coordinator, Aaron Glenn in this case for the Lions, you're going to be kept up all hours of the night to try to defend that. Because if you see him lined up all over the place, you're going to have to defend that, whether he's a decoy or not. And that's to go along with Brandon Ayuk, with George Kittle, with their running backs, Too many weapons that they have there. And if Samuel's not going to play, that's not to say that the Niners are going to lose or they can't beat the Lions, but that's a huge piece that if he's not going to be flanked outright or if he's not going to be in any way, shape, or form on that field come Sunday at 6.30, then the Lions, not to say that they can kick back and, oh, it's going to be a breeze, but that's one less problem they have to deal with. But as far as the game itself... I think this is going to be a tough task for the Lions based on the performance of what we saw with the Niners there Saturday night against the Packers. I can't see them putting up two back to back clunkers and escaping with a victory. I could see them playing from in front. I could see them being crisp. I could see them jumping out to a big lead. When I say big lead, you know, 14 nothing. Would I be shocked if it's 28 six at the half? I can't say I would. The Niners have been a machine all year. And mind you, these are two games that this is the first time they're meeting this year. This is not a sequel. So this is at least refreshing to know that we're going to see both championship games, these teams meeting up for the first time this year. But I really think, although Jared Goff, who the Niners defense is familiar with, with his days in LA, and even though Goff has been successful in a championship setting when it comes to the conference I think they're going to fall short I could see them making some runs I could even see them hanging in the game but when it's all said and done I think it's 9 is 30 Lions 20 and as far as the coaches Jim Harbaugh introduced in LA as the Charger head coach and that is a good plus Not only for that organization, but for the league, because the Chargers, as we know, that's not a home field playing at SoFi. When you think of that building, you think more of the Rams, maybe because they won recently and because they have a history in LA when they moved back there, what was it, in 2016? But the Chargers, they have no connection to LA. I know they had the three years where they played in Carson before moving up a few miles to play in SoFi, and now you would think that they're going to have an identity and it starts with the head coach. And I understand he comes with baggage, and I understand that he's a guy that's probably going to ruffle a lot of feathers, but we know that the players is going to play for him, and he's had success in the NFL, as we know, with his days in San Francisco, and now that he's going to be in LA, the spotlight is going to be squarely on him to produce with that quarterback in the one Justin Herbert, and with a veteran defense, and who knows what's going to happen this offseason, if there's going to be some movement there when it comes to guys like Khalil Mack. Or even Derwin James, who we know that has been in and out of the lineup throughout the course of his career with injury. But he does add some oomph there. And the Spanos family, as we know, has been cheap from the beginning of time. And even though they've had coaches like Marty Schottenheimer and they've had a little bit of a success, but we all know that they've been not as snakebit as the Bills, the Vikings, the Cleveland Browns, or even the Lions, minus this year. But the Chargers have have had moments where they've had big time years, but they've just imploded in the postseason. And now with Harbaugh, part of the mix there, you would think that that's going to go a long way for them to have any success. Five years, don't know what the terms are of his contract, but you would think, maybe not in year one, but certainly, and who knows, I'm sure the expectations in year one are going to be huge. But we're going to have to wait and see how this roster is going to be built here under the new coach. But you would think with this five-year plan, there's going to be a lot of success there in SoFi, and I'm not even talking about the Ram team. So we'll have to wait and see on that. And where's Bill Belichick going? Atlanta, a second interview? Okay, fine, but nothing has really come out of the ATL as far as whether or not they found their guy. And if they had to go back for a second interview, it makes you think, wait a minute. Did Bill Belichick not slam dunk the first one? I get it. His name and his resume alone speaks volumes. But if Arthur Blank and company weren't sure the first time around, like why was there a second interview? So who knows? I don't know if he's gone elsewhere for any of the vacant spots. And we understand they're starting to close up here. We know Antonio Pierce in L.A., excuse me, in Las Vegas as they took off the interim tag. Who knows what's happening in Washington? Has even Bill Belichick been interviewed? Big giant question mark there. So I'll wait to see where Bill Belichick is going to go. But surprising to think that here we are now, just days before the conference championships. And who knows? Maybe an announcement will be made between the title games and the Super Bowl. But you still have to wonder whether or not Bill Belichick is going to be employed, whether it's in Atlanta or elsewhere. Right now, your guess is as good as mine. All right, let me go to the NBA as I lace up my high tops. The association and the Milwaukee Bucks have had an eventful 48 hours or so. Now, their defense has been deplorable. They ranked toward the bottom of the league. And we understand that when Mike Budenholzer was there, they had... A defensive mindset, even with the good offensive players that they've had there, and this was prior to Damian Lillard, as we know, but with Adrian Griffin coming in as a first-time NBA head coach, and although their record is 30-13, and 13, second in the Eastern Conference, but when you have teams like the Pistons, who, as we all know, the Pistons have been god-awful, and when they're putting up 135 points against your team, as well as the Cleveland Cavaliers, and I get it that the game was in Cleveland last night, with the Cavs in Milwaukee, they did win last night. And Doc Rivers, I don't believe he was at the on the bench at that time. As the announcement was made yesterday, as Doc Rivers is the new coach, and I'll get to that in a second. The assistant and interim Joe Prunty was the guy in charge. But for the Bucks to then fire Griffin, and then scramble around to see if they could get a top-name coach, and they bring in Doc Rivers... Just goes to show you how much the front office screwed up in firing Mike Budenholzer. And I understand that when you look back at Game 4, and I talked about this on Monday, Game 4 where they had a 13-point lead with 6 minutes to go, 102-89, and the Heat came roaring back. I believe that was the Jimmy Butler where he scored 55 points in that game. And then the way they blew the end of Game 5 where the Heat ousted them in the first round. And he made no adjustments. Almost looked like he was sleepwalking through those final two games of that series. And we understand that his brother was involved in a fatal car accident just days before the start of the postseason. And I'm sure that was weighing heavily on him. And for Budenholzer to be shown the door, which was terrible in that regard. Carmen never forgets an address, and that's where it bit him right in the ass. Because for them to jettison Adrian Griffin. A little bit more than halfway through the season. And then you're going to bring in Doc Rivers. Who I get it. Won a championship in Boston. 16 years ago I might add. But more recently. Blowing 3-1 leads. Whether it's in the bubble or outside of that. As a Clipper coach. With either. Lob City, Chris Paul and Blake Griffin. Or fast forward to Kawhi Leonard and Paul George. So neither of those teams came through for him. And then goes to Philadelphia. And last year. Took a 3-2 series lead against the Celtics and blew out the Celtics in a game five in Boston to where they lost game six in Philly to where Jason Tatum was awful in the first three quarters and then turned it on the final quarter. And then Tatum turned around in game seven and scored 51 points, the most in a game seven in NBA history. And then Doc Rivers was ousted. So now you have a scenario where the front office said, all right, who can we get? Where can we go? All right, Doc Rivers, we're going to bring you in. What? I love Doc Rivers, I got nothing against the guy, he's a great guy, etc., but that is a reach, if you ask me, and he's coming mid-season, he's going to have to get acclimated to these two players, yes, I understand he has more of a defensive mindset, and whatever he's going to implement here over the course of these final, what is it, 37 games, fantastic, but I don't know if this is going to work, and I'm sure he signed for the rest of this year, obviously it's not a multi-year deal, but... If this isn't a band-aid over a situation that unlike anything I've ever seen, then I don't know what is. To me, this is desperation. Because I get it, you have the two big pieces there in Giannis and Damian Lillard. It's championship and even conference final or bust, as we know. But if I'm the front office And even the ownership, I got to look in the mirror. Let Griffin play out the rest of that thing. Even Giannis, I know he said that he was shocked by the departure of Griffin. And we know Giannis is debatable on whether or not he didn't stick up for Budenholzer at the time where his life was just falling apart outside of the court. But if I'm a Buck fan, I don't like what I see. And who knows how this is going to play out here from now And obviously, it's going to be graded when you get to April, May, and maybe even June for that matter. But boy, what I've seen here over the last few days, it does not look good. It's not to say they can't win a title. It's not to say that they don't have the roster. They certainly have a team in place. But the leadership from the top all the way down, definitely not looking good. And then you had a trade a few days ago where the Heat acquired Terry Rozier from the Charlotte Hornets and they shipped Kyle Lowry to Charlotte along with a 2027 lottery protected pick. That is a good deal for the Heat, but there's one problem with that. Is Terry Rozier a Heat culture type player? Is he a guy that's going to play defense? Is he a guy that's going to have his body conditioned? To play that heat style. That's going to take charges. That's going to try to lock down. His. Competition. A guy that could chuck it up with the best of them. He's averaged 23 points. He's having a career year. Based on what he's done. Throughout the course of the first half of the year. But is he a guy that's going to fit in. And meld with the Bam Adebayos. And with the Jimmy Butler's. Tyler heroes of the world. I don't know. He's going to have to buy in quick because if he's going to be a guy that's going to want the ball, is going to want to just take the ball and not be team-oriented, that's going to be an issue. So that's the one thing I would take heed to pay attention to, and maybe not necessarily now in the regular season, but come playoff time. So keep that receipt for somewhere down the road because that's one that, hey, he may fit in, he's going to a winning team, has a chance to maybe even get to a final considering they went to an NBA final last year. All right, I'm playing with Jimmy Buckets, I'm playing with Bam, Eric Spolstra, Heat family, culture, etc. But yeah, come crunch time, if he's not getting the ball or if you feel like he's not getting enough shots, that's going to be a problem. So let's just keep that in mind as we move forward here in this NBA season. The one thing I would think and let me throw this at you, people. I talked about the Oklahoma City Thunder a couple weeks ago as a team. Could they make it to the finals? And here they are. Now they're tied for first place in the West with the T-Wolves. But we could also say the same for them. And mind you, the Nuggets are just a half game behind them as they're in town to play the Knicks tonight. Those three teams are 31-13, OKC and Minnesota, followed by Denver at 31 31-14. And, and we know about the Nuggets, the defending champ. But are the T-Wolves worthy of being a team to go to an NBA final? Young team, even immature team. As stated by Chris Finch the other day when Carl Anthony Towns scored 62 points in a loss against the Hornets. So it was good that he called out his team almost as if this was something that they may have needed. Considering that they just overlooked the Hornets as a team that ah, they've only won what, 9-10 games this year? Yeah, we could go ahead and just spanked them and sure enough they ended up losing. Even with Carl Anthony Towns putting up, I believe, a franchise best 62 points. So when we look at the T-Wolves, just like we could look at the Oklahoma City Thunder. Are these two teams, you would think are going to be in the thick of things, but are they championship contending teams right now? There's still a lot of basketball to be played. I get it, injuries and you know there's going to be a bit of a shift here where Denver's going to be there. They're going to be a mainstay, but now Phoenix is playing well and you have to wonder whether or not that they're starting to click on all cylinders. They've won seven in a row and slowly but surely they're moving up the Western Conference to the tune of a 26-18 and record. They're just three games. Well, I shouldn't say just. They're three games behind the Clippers, but now you have to wonder if the trajectory they're trending north And maybe that they're starting to get their sea legs to the point where they're going to be a contending team there amongst the likes of the aforementioned teams. So we'll have to wait till April, May, and June to really unpack this. And I'm sure a lot of people are going to say, uh-uh, Minnesota or OKC, they're probably still a year or two away. As of now, they've been consistent. They're tied for first. Slim as the margins, as we know, with Denver breathing down their necks. But something to keep in mind to throw the T-Wolves in with OKC as teams that can they get out of the West and even represent in an NBA final. Again, people, receipts. And then the other night you had the scenario in Philly where the Sixers and Joel Embiid scored 70 points, which is rarefied air in the NBA these days. And I believe he did it on the night of the anniversary of Kobe's 81. Now, I get it that there's no correlation or connection, unless you want to say Kobe being from Philly, Lower Merion High School, etc., but for Embiid, 70, 18, and 5, I think it was a number, well, those numbers weren't anything close to what we've seen in quite some time, even going back to the days of Will Chamberlain and the Sixers looking at that as the all-time record for most points scored in the game, but then a lot of people remember Wilt, when he scored his 100. He was a member of the Philadelphia Warriors that was before the Sixers, which I understand that's splitting hairs. Some people could say, ah, that's not the all-time record, et cetera. But for Embiid, that is a remarkable achievement. We understand the reigning MVP, how great he is, and what the Sixers have done to this point of the season. And we know that they're going to be in the mix there when it comes to the top few teams in the conference. But besides that, and even with Cleveland, they had that long winning streak snapped yesterday, as I mentioned, by the Bucs. They had won eight in a row and were riding high. But the Eastern Conference, as competitive as it is, especially in the middle portion, Celtics currently have a three-game lead over the Bucks in the East. And then Philly's just a game behind Milwaukee, where you have Cleveland, the Knicks, both relatively tied. I mean, they're both... Percentage points ahead, Cleveland over the Knicks sounds familiar. That was your first round series last year. Cavs 26 16, Knicks 27 17. Then you have Heat, Pacers, both with the same record, but Miami is the sixth seed. So it's going to be contested there how this all unfolds. Of course, we will keep our fingers on the pulse on that. And then, like I mentioned, with the Suns playing well, and you wonder that if this is going to be their time to click for their time to inch closer to the top of the conference. Wondering if OKC or Minnesota will they take a back seat or come back to the pack, if you will, considering that they have still played well above anybody could ever imagine or expect. And then in the bottom rung, whether you're the Mavericks who have been flailing here a little bit, we've talked about the Lakers, we've talked about even Golden State, especially after trying to overcome that tragedy. Interesting things, even the Rockets. And the reason why I bring up the Rockets is because that's a team that has been awful, but they are on the outside looking in as far as the 7-10 range in the Western Conference. But with Ime Odoka, coach on the sidelines for the first time since his days in Boston, as we know, and you wonder whether or not that young team is going to have enough of a push to be part of that range when it comes to the playing scenario when we get to the spring. And that's what I have there with the association. As far as the NHL, it's the song remains the same theory. I hate to even say it like that, but it's true. But are the Edmonton Oilers, what are they ever going to lose? They've now won 14 in a row, riding high, talk about clicking on all cylinders. But here's the thing, even with the new coach and even with them playing at a torrid clip, it all boils down to what are they going to do in the spring? What's going to happen April, May, and June? We know who the cast of characters are. We know the type of firepower that they have on that team. Defensively, a bit more of an upgrade over the years. Goaltender, shaky at best. But I understand if that goalie is hot, come April, May, they could go a long way. But we could talk so much in depth about the way they played, how they've been able to turn their season around. But even with their 14-game winning streak on top of them winning an eight-game streak earlier in the year, this is after starting the season 2-10-0. And, and as I mentioned on Monday, and I feel like last Thursday and the Monday before that, this team is still in third place. You would have thought that with this winning streak, they'd be, oh, they got to be just a few points behind the top spot in the division. That is not the case because the Canucks, as I talked about They have been playing well above their heads. 69 points, the most in the sport. And even though the Canucks, maybe not a lot of people will think that they'll be there when it's all said and done as far as representing the Western Conference in a Stanley Cup final. But Edmonton will continue to monitor their progress and to see how far they go because the one thing that is left for Conor McDavid, more so him than anybody else. I understand Leon Dreisaitl and a few of the guys on the team. But more so for Conor McDavid. And I get it. He is still in the prime of his career. Hasn't even approached those prime years from whatever, 28 to 32. But considering all the hardware that he's received from an individual basis and how he's been able to take home MVPs and scoring titles, et cetera. What's missing is that Stanley Cup. And we get it that with Alexander Ovechkin, it took him a long time to finally get to that mountaintop. A lot of heartache in the postseason. We could go through the laundry list of brutal losses to the Penguins, down 3-1 to the Canadians who were in eight seed in 2010. We could go through it all. But he finally got that championship in 2018 when they beat the Vegas Golden Knights. That's all that's left for Connor McDavid. And that's why... They're the focal point considering that this winning streak and how it's reached 14, how they've been able to get themselves back into the mix there considering that they were at the bottom of the Pacific Division and now we'll have to see, of course this streak is going to end at some point, but can they continue to play on this consistent level to get closer and better standing in the division to where they don't have to worry about the wild card that they can maybe battle for a two-seed, or maybe even, depending on how Vancouver's going to play here, you would think that they're going to come back to the pack a little bit. So, to me, that's one fascinating story. I understand that's not all of the NHL. There's a lot of other storylines that we could get into. Obviously, the aforementioned Canucks, even the Winnipeg Jets, for that matter. We could talk about Colorado, where Nathan McKinnon had a four-goal performance, the second one this year. What was it, last night? And we know that the... Avalanche, Winnipeg, even the Dallas Stars making it to a conference final last year. You can't discount the defending champs. It is going to be hotly contested. And I haven't even talked about the teams in the East. So, we will continue to see how this is all going to unfold. The All-Star break is not until next weekend, not this one. So, even though the slog of the NHL season as we still skate around in circles just to get to the trade deadline, well, to the All-Star break first and the trade deadline, which I believe is usually the first week of March. And then obviously, once we get into spring, past the tournament, and into April, we could finally exhale and say, all right, let's see where the chips fall. Let's get to all the matchups and see where the road to the Stanley Cup final will lie. And I know you had this other story, which I haven't really... Perused fully, but for whatever the reason, there's another case as we saw with the Blackhawks a few years ago, with Joel Quenville, with the trainer back in the early 2010s, with one of their players. But you have five NHL players on leave amid this sexual assault inquiry. Now, they were part of this world junior team back in 2018, and I guess. They're going to not face any charges. But maybe there's going to be accounts of these guys. Whether your name is Mike McLeod, Cal Foote, who both play for the Devils. Carter Hart, the goalie of the Flyers. Dylan Dubey I believe it's Dubé if you pronounce it, or Dubé, of Calgary. And then in, also involves a former NHL player who's now currently playing in Europe. But the reasons for these guys to be on leave, whether that means that there's going to be an account of these particular players based on this accusation of an investigation that was launched a couple of years ago that this woman said that she was assaulted by eight members of the 2018 World Junior Team and with these five guys, who knows what's going to come out of this So something that we may have to keep in mind as how these players and what's going to, I don't know if there's going to be any jail time that's going to be faced or sentencing. I'm sure the process has begun. But how this is going to impact their current teams, we'll have to wait and see. But just another ugly mark in a sport that's had them. even going back to Sheldon Kennedy. Look him up when he was with the Red Wings. But this is when he was playing on his junior team. Back when he was a teenager. And how he had to deal with sexual assault from his coach at that time. This one I understand it's different because it involves players and a woman. Based on these allegations going back now six years ago. So we'll have to wait and see how that's going to transpire as we move it along here. A couple of quickies before I wrap up. With the tennis... Carlos Alcaraz out, which certainly puts a little bit of a cloud. And that's not to knock Daniil Medvedev by any stretch, but a lot of people were hoping to get an Alcaraz, Djokovic final there down under. That's not going to happen. And then you have Coco Goff who was just eliminated by Arena Sabalenka. Now Sabalenka looks like she's going to have a clear path to win an Australian Open. So that's something we'll have to. Keep in mind here as we go into the weekend, the final days of this tournament, and we'll recap this all on Monday, but Medvedev, who ended up beating Alcaraz, won the first two sets, the tiebreaker went to Alcaraz, but then Medvedev was able to regroup and was able to put him away in a fourth and final set, so Alcaraz, after that Wimbledon victory last year, falls short at the U.S. Open, falls short here at the Australian, now we're going to wait to see until spring at the French to see whether or not we will have a clash of the titans between the young Alcaraz and the old venerable Novak Djokovic. And then to see Goff go down, I get it, it wasn't in a championship final, but we knew that Sabalenka and Goff were going to meet up at some point, and as we saw there, Sabalenka got the best of Goff, which would have been nice to see considering she won the US Open last year, and for her to win back-to-back major tournaments would have been obviously very nice on her mantle, but even more so for the sport of tennis and even U.S. women's or U.S. tennis overall. When you think about it, because as we all know, U.S. tennis is somewhere out to sea, and I'll say that nicely. We haven't had a group of men or women's players. I get it, you could say Serena Williams. Totally understand from that standpoint. But to have the stream of consciousness for the sports fan here in this country to say oh I could hang my hat on this guy or this gal and be able to follow them throughout the course of these major tournaments year in and year out but with Goff out and Sabalenka who's going to play Zheng Jinwen for the final there on Saturday and Zhenwen, I don't know anything about I have to say hand raised high in the air but She's made it here to a final, and Sabalenka, who has been down this road before, you would think that she's going to be heavily favored to win the women's side of this tournament. And then on the men's, to me, I think it's going to be Djokovic. He's going to smell it. Now, he could lose. I'm not trying to say it's an automatic. It's a shoe-in slam dunk. But, you would think that when it's all said and done, we're going to see Djokovic win another Australian Open, which I believe he's already won 10 of these. So, this is his tournament. The first one of the year and Monday we'll recap it all and get that one under our belts. And then finally with Major League Baseball, you had the writers enshrine these three players into the hall. Adrian Beltre, Joe Maurer, Todd Helton. The guys on the outside looking in, Gary Sheffield and Billy Wagner, who was that close. I believe he got 73% of the vote. And for Wagner, I believe he has one, yes, I believe he has another year or two left of eligibility, so you think he's going to get in, I don't think he's a Hall of Famer in my eyes, I know he was a reliever for several teams, most notably the Astros and even the Mets there, but remember, he in the postseason that year was awful, and his career in the postseason, in 11 innings, he's given up 21 hits and his ERA is over 10, that is not Hall of Fame worthy. And I get it, he had that wicked slider to go with a fastball that reached 100 and was a dominant closer in the regular season. But closers, you have to also back it up, if you're fortunate, come playoff time. All you got to do is look at guys like Bruce Suter, Raleigh Fingers. Obviously, the platinum standard is Mariano. And can you say Billy Wagner is in the company of those guys? Not in my eyes. Sheffield got seventy, excuse me, 63% of the vote in his last year of eligibility. Now the next time that he could be up for the Hall of Fame would be the Contemporary Committee, which I believe will be as early as next year. So who knows, Sheff may get in that way, but with his connection with steroids, and even though the one time that he got caught with the cream in training with Barry Bonds many years ago, that may put... A black mark on him, but you would think at 63.9, you need 75% of the vote. He's that close to getting in, so maybe his contemporaries will usher him into the hall when it's all said and done. Then you had Andrew Jones at 61, Carlos Beltran 57. Jones, to me, one of the great defensive center fielders that I've seen play. To me, Kevin Griffey Jr., as far as me being alive, he was the best, but Andrew Jones does not take a backseat defensively when it comes to patrolling center field. But he falls short in my eyes when it comes to his numbers. 254 lifetime batting average. I get it. He hit 50 home runs one time. And he has well more than 400 home runs in his career. But he's not a Hall of Famer. And Beltron just falls a tad bit short in my eyes. Although a dominant postseason player. But never won an MVP. I believe he was in the top 10 a few times. But still never reached being the best player in his league at any point. But for the guys who... Made it to the Hall, Adrian Beltre, when you get 3,000 hits, and I get it with Beltre, he wasn't a dominant player, but he was an excellent defensive third baseman. Hit a bunch of home runs. But when you hit 3,000 base hits throughout the course of your career, you're going to get in. So I can understand why the voters were able to, at 95%, I might add, enter him into the Hall. Joe Maurer, I get it, he had injuries, the concussion, a guy that stayed on one team throughout his career, three-time batting champion at catcher, won an MVP, that's never been done, three times as a batting champ, and I get it, he's a guy that would probably fall short on a lot of lists, but he is a good guy from Minnesota, has a Hall of Fame career based on what the writers saw, and to me, I think he falls just a little bit short, although I can see why they honored him, so kudos to him. But the last one, Todd Helton, to me is a product of Coors Field. I get it that he put up some big-time numbers in throughout the course of his career, 40 and 130 big-time batting averages, but here's the stark difference. When you bat 340 at home and 287 on the road, and you've hit 100 more home runs in Coors Field than you have on the road, to me, It's all about him playing in the thin air and mile high. And that's why he's in. Now people could say, all right, well, Larry Walker's in. And he had a bunch of his big seasons in Colorado. But when he played in the Montreal Expos, he had big time years there. And yes, he did win an MVP, which helps in 97 as a member of the Rockies. But Larry Walker was an excellent defensive outfielder. Todd Helton, not to be confused with Keith Hernandez or... Guys of that ilk who played first base, even Don Mattingly, who's not a Hall of Famer, but he was a great defensive first baseman. So we're going to look at Helton now based on his numbers and played for one team as Hall of Fame worthy. And when you look at the stark differences of those numbers, I'm sorry, that doesn't mean that he's an automatic Hall of Famer. So to me, full short there, but when you look at guys like Craig Biggio who had 3,000 hits, but was a compiler, or Harold Baines, or some of these other guys that got in, and Baines was through the committee that I talked about, the Contemporary Committee, just about anybody's going to get in the Hall of Fame. So who am I to say? I'm a short room guy or a small room guy. You have to be dominant. You have to be elite. Helton, to me, is not that. And let me see what else do we have here before I bid adieu with baseball. Reese Hoskins signed a two-year, $34 million deal with Milwaukee. He was not going to play first base because now Bryce Harper... With him playing first base last year, coming off the Tommy John surgery, that pretty much made him a guy that was not going to come back to Philadelphia, so let's see if he can resurrect his career after tearing his ACL last spring as a member of the Brewers, who adds a bat and maybe some leadership and experience there, so that's going to be a help. But Hoskins, a guy who fit in well and fit in nicely with a Philly team that had big players on the team, but how he's going to do Milwaukee, who knows. That'll do it, my good people. Another episode just about in the books. As always, thank you so much for stopping by. Thank you so much for taking our precious time out of your day to listen to what it is I have to say about what goes on in the world of sports. If you haven't done so, please subscribe, rate and review. Throw me a few stars, write a review. You know the drill. Hit me up on any of my socials with a question, comment, or suggestion. My YouTube channel, at J Reels. Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, the J Reels Podcast. Twitter, X, J Reels, one, just the number, or the old-fashioned way, the J Reels Podcast at gmail.com. Because whether you do or do not know, This is what I love to do, people, it's in the blood, it's in the DNA. As I like to say, talking sports is what I do, is what I'm about since day one on this planet pretty much. Bringing nothing but fire, passion, fury, energy into this microphone through your earbuds, headphones, or speakers with my thoughts, opinions, critiques, praise, analysis, feelings on anything and everything. That happens on the world of the diamond, ice, gridiron, hardwood, golf course, racetrack, tennis court, boxing ring, octagon, you name it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, the J Reels Podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. From the South Bronx, to the Southeast, to the South Central, to the South Pacific, and all points beyond, peace, love, and God bless everybody, and until next time on the J Reels Podcast, on the flip, baby.